My name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. A couple days ago, I was pooping in a public booth, the cozy one that I prefer, and I noticed that I've got a string, like I've got a kind of bird call, like an insect warning that I employ whenever I'm pooping in a public place and I'm afraid that someone's going to accost me. As I've mentioned before, I spend pretty much every morning at a local coffee shop. It's very small and quaint and charming, and that's why I like it, but a byproduct of its being small and quaint and charming is that it only has one bathroom. It only has one toilet. And every now and then I go into that bathroom needing to pee, and when I look down into the bowl, I see the faintest little brush stroke of human shit at the bottom where a turd presumably sat for a while before it was suctioned down. And when I see that, I tend to think, what courage. I could never poop in a little place like that, and I'm not sure what my reservation is all about, but I do know, when I was in high school, I, I would kind of semi-joke with friends that if I ever had my own house, which is, is still as, as fantastic a notion to me at 30 as it was at 15, if I ever have a house and I buy a gun, I would put that gun in the bathroom. I would strap it under the toilet tank. Because I had a kind of weird anxiety, I sort of discussed it as a, as a funny hypothetical scenario, but I, like, I, I, I legitimately worried about it, that someday, while incapacitated on the toilet with diarrhea, some bandits would break into my house, and I'd be there on the toilet, guns pointed at me, shitting my brains out, and then what am I gonna do? Agree to their requests, probably, but would they let me finish? Would they let me wipe? Imagine you're in a hostage situation, you're being robbed at gunpoint in the ostensible safety of your own home, and compounding your terror at the hostage situation in that, in this crisis moment, is the slippery indignity of having just shat a river out of your weary butt, and you didn't get, and they didn't, your, your hostage takers didn't let you wipe. Anyway, I generally don't like pooping in coffee shops. I feel studied, like an animal is gonna track my scent, or I'm gonna walk out and people are all gonna like grimace, and they're gonna know how long I was in there, and they're gonna snicker, and they're gonna be like, I know what you did in there, and it's it's disgusting. None of us do what you did. You're the only one who does that, and it's gross. So what I do, since I can't poop at the coffee shop, is after I have finished my coffee, and, and nature calls me up collect under the duress of too much espresso, I get up, I walk a couple blocks, and I enter a little shopping plaza in downtown Miami. This, <laughs> this place is quaint, like the coffee shop, but there's a public bathroom where, in this field, it feels like, like such a subtle luxury. The doors of the stall go all the way to the floor and all the way to the ceiling. It's like shitting in Dubai. It's like the kind of luxury that feels almost criminal. So I go there, I sit down, I do my business, but I like <laughs> this one particular stall. Don't ask me why. There are, it, has its, it has its qualities, but the stall's only shortcoming is that the lock doesn't look very secure. Now, I've never had occasion to question the strength or the veracity of this particular latch, but it looks like you wouldn't need more than a hearty shove to break through it. And in a public bathroom, even if somebody isn't trying to break in, there's a chance that they are in some kind of gastric frenzy. Shit so bad. They're moving at a trot through the mall, they're barging into the bathroom, questing for relief, and then they slam up against the stall, just like Seabass showing up for his March 25th appointment at 2.15am sharp. And there I would be, helpless, 
vulnerable, traumatized. Apparently I've taken some intense subconscious account for the likelihood of such a catastrophe because I have noticed that whenever somebody walks into the bathroom at this plaza place and I'm here on the can, I start making noises. And it happens reflexively and it happens really fast. Like I'll cough <coughs> or I'll clear my throat <coughs> or I ding the toilet paper dispenser with my knee. And this isn't just paranoid precaution because every single time that I do this, I end up seeing the shadow of a man's shoes pausing under the door, turning to face the door, and then sometimes, even after I've made a gentle, maidenly noise to indicate that I'm in the process of pushing feces out of myself, they toggle the door. Well, it sounds like there's somebody in there, and the door appears to be locked, but let me just fuck with the door handle to make sure. When I was in college working on the newspaper staff, there was a bit of a hullabaloo about an article that we were trying to write about the best places to poop on campus. We had clearance from our supervisor and from the editor-in-chief, and it did seem like this amusing kind of irreverent concept, but we realized there was a catch to it. The people that we interviewed were surprisingly forthcoming about what they considered to be the best places to poop on campus. But the thing is, like, they were so forthcoming about it, even though what we found again and again is that the defining characteristic of a comfortable pooping spot is that it's deserted. It's the bathroom off in some awkward corner in the fourth floor of a gray concrete building. It's the small, chilly, echoey two-stall bathroom in the west end of the library's sixth floor. Nobody is around. When your mid-poop farts trumpet into the bowl and reverberate through the room, fear not, for there's nobody here to judge. Nobody within 20 yards of the door. And so we found ourselves caught in this ethical bind. We, champions of the First Amendment, we balancers, of executive power, it occurred to us that by publishing the locations of these coveted poop spots, we would be definitively ruining them. A Moe's Mexican Grill had just been established in one of the campus's food courts. There was a Taco Bell and a Panda Express currently under construction. Had we revealed the whereabouts of the sacred two-ply shrine, it would soon be defiled by a, a, a legion of 20-somethings. What we came to appreciate is that a free press may indeed be a right but the management of a newspaper is a privilege, and with that privilege comes responsibility. And so we abstained, we killed the article, and many a burrito-burdened bowel on the campus of FIU has moved itself in peace thereafter. The vast majority of behavior problems in the classroom involve minor breaches of discipline. These incidents frequently originate in the classroom situation itself and are within the control of the teacher. Mr. Grimes, mathematics teacher, is displeased with the progress of his ninth grade class in mathematics. You see what low grade you made on your weekly mathematics test. More than half of you failed. Many of you failed to hand in your homework yesterday. Now, you know that that... What is this? Stop that noise! As I mentioned at the top of the episode, I'm weirdly self-conscious, not only about, like, pooping in a place where everyone's gonna know I just pooped, I'm kind of uncomfortable, I think, about, like, this middle section of my body in general, and a major turning point in this realization came from a podcast episode that I recorded, actually. I'm kind of obsessed with 9-11. As you might have noticed if you listened to the episode that I published on on the 19th anniversary, back in September of 2020. It was this traumatic 
televised event that I saw live on TV as a kid. I was 10 years old. I was in uh, fifth grade, I think. And subsequently, every two or three years, I go through this very brooding period of like binging the more recent accounts of what happened in the buildings or on the street or in the Pennsylvania field where the third plane went down. And one of the things that caught my attention last year, what, what caught my attention so much is the fact that while we know what we, we can see footage of so many people who jumped rather than you know, rather than face the flames behind them, there aren't many photos of the remains of those jumpers. And this is largely attributable to, to two factors. The first is that living in an age of smartphones, we kind of take for granted that every major crisis is going to is going to generate more photography than you could look at in a lifetime. But that wasn't the case in 2001. People weren't just walking around with cameras in their pockets. Also, apart from that the buildings collapsed on the remains in question. And so, on the ground, there, there wasn't much to see. But the other factor is that when people jumped from 70 stories in the sky, they often got carried a few yards in, in one direction or another by the wind. And they ended up landing not on the ground, but on the roof of, a, some, of some surrounding building, some neighboring building. Anyway, there are a handful of photos of these jumpers, of their remains having dropped from such a height, they're totally unrecognizable. What you basically see in these photos is a puddle of viscera inside of a dress shirt, or, or a high heel with some pulp in it. And ever since I looked at those photos, I feel very viscerally the pulpiness of my own insides. I feel myself as like this bony receptacle for like a heaping liquid mess. In reading Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs for the first time just a just a couple months ago, I, I was kind of amused to learn, and it's certainly like played up as a comedic beat whenever, whenever it's mentioned. One of the great odiums in working for Steve Jobs is that he basically never wore deodorant. Steve Jobs, as a younger man, was, was a total hippie, took psychedelics on a regular basis, and he, he was a vegan at some points in his life, and I, I think the word he used was a fruititarian at others, where, as you can imagine, all he ate was fruit. And so his conviction was that by only ingesting fruits and vegetables, he did not generate body odor. And he was wrong. Everyone around him was quick to point out. He was, he, he smelled like shit. He smelled like shit. He was always barefoot. Plus he was mean. By the way, the other, the other day at Publix, I happened upon this little isolated fridge in the produce section where there were affordable kind of pre-made vegan products. There's like veggie patties and meatless cold cuts that are very heavily seasoned and probably not all that healthy. You know who's a vegan? Fucking Bill Clinton. Which reminds me... I read an interview the other day with a guy who had been a pastry chef in the White House for 25 years, and he was talking about working for the Clintons in the 90s. This pastry chef, by the way, had to get like really inventive during his tenure because Bill Clinton is allergic to flour, and so he had to like find different ways of making pastries. But he said like you could you you could be frightened by Bill Clinton's appetite that he would eat five or six pork chops in a sitting and then half of a cake, which as I was reading it made me think about his poops. Because like whenever I'm out with my girlfriend and we order a pizza, I'm like, fucking, if I eat a bunch of this pizza, it's gonna sit in my stomach all night and it's gonna slosh around during sex and maybe I'll fart or I'll have to wake up at 3 a.m. for like a roaring, honking shit. And that's what this pastry chef's interview got me thinking about. Bill Clinton must have been taking huge shits at the White House if he was eating fucking the, the, the majority of a farm animal every day. Which reminds me, actually, one of David Foster Wallace's uh, observations from that book, um, 
although of course you end up becoming yourself. The one, one of the observations that has always stayed with me is that we, we tend to begin our day eating eggs for breakfast and an egg is an animal before it's born. And then culturally, we tend to see fit that at the end of the day, we eat a steak or a burger, which is you know red meat and it is the raw form of an animal just after it has died. And that we, we tend to mirror the trajectory of the life cycle dietetically as we move through the day. I also heard a story one time, and I don't know if this is true, so I probably shouldn't be repeating it, but it's funny, I think. The story is that one time in the White House, Hillary Clinton threw a dinner plate at Bill, and there was a Secret Service agent nearby, and he, and he saw what happened, and this Secret Service agent sent a message to his superior asking, like, what steps do I take to protect the president when his attacker is the First Lady? Which fucking really does put the Secret Service in a bind. I kind of don't like that she did that. I have my, okay. Nobody should have a plate thrown at them by their spouse. But it reminds me of when I'm working at the restaurant and like I'll drop off a check at a table. And then when I come to pick it up, the two men at the table, and usually there's an age gap of like 25 years. And so I get the vibe. It's usually like a younger man and his father-in-law. They each at once hand me their debit cards from opposite ends of the table. And each one starts getting aggressive with me. Like not, they're not trying to split the bill. They're trying to sort of like mafiosi muscle me into taking their card over the other guys. No, no, I'm serious. Look Don't at me. take oh, his card, I swear take to God. fucking card, dude. Don't take it. Don't, I'm telling you, I won't come back. It puts me in such a fucking awkward position. Also, speaking of awkward position, well, not awkward positions, but the other Saturday at like 9 p.m., there was this wealthy looking straight couple at my bar. And I shit you not, over the course of their meal, the woman called me over and complained about innocuous shit three times. How how warm it was in the restaurant. Like I was walking to a table with like four plates in my hand. They were conspicuously heavy. They're like boards that I've got pizzas on. And she stopped me as I was walking and she was like, um, excuse me, do you know why it's so warm in here? And I was, I was just like, yeah, yes, fellow Miami resident. I do know why it's so warm in here. It begins with something called the equator. She insisted that I had poured more, like I had under poured her husband's martini and given her too much, which is not true. She just asked for a martini with double vermouth, which is weird. It's like buying a condom and asking for double the rubber and half the lube. But I did it, and so the levels were a little bit off. But anyway, the point, and there's another podcast where I'm going to be talking about this, but she complained to me three times. And prior to each complaint, she said, I never complain, but, and then she carried forth with her complaint. And I, always, I kept wanting to lean in, like, really? You never complain? Because you're very good at it, Sandra. Anyway, fucking, I found that little fridge full of vegan options. And so, and so I bought some. And over the course of that week, I ate a mostly vegan diet. Since doing most of that vegan food, I haven't quite been feeling my body in that September 11th kind of vibe that I was telling you about. Like when I'm stuffed to capacity with roughage and, and granola and water, instead of pizza and beer, which is my normal sta you know, state of being, I don't feel physically like a thin plastic bag of chewed food balanced precariously between two pogo sticks, which is how I feel walking down the street. Instead, as you know, eating like a gallimimus, I feel more of a piece, like more bonded on the inside, which is what eating a lot of greens is supposed to do to your, to your insides. It's supposed to bind you up, bind your poops. But now fucking also, I'm wondering if this, if it was ever even a real physical sensation, or if maybe this was all in my head, a sort of lingering byproduct of being exposed to all that photography of people who had jumped 
onto the pavement from, you know, a few football stories up from, you know, from the top of the World Trade Center. I also have always like really liked Susan Sontag's phrase about the soul being harnessed to the flesh, like trapped inside of it or shackled to it. So basically what I guess I've been chewing on, this sensation of things sloshing around in my, in my fucking core, is the idea of, the, of, of one's body as a kind of encumbrance, in some respects. I love my body, I love having it. It's a great vector of joy, for sure, and you can have lots of fun with it via exercise and sex, and even just resting can be like this wonderfully sensuous thing if like at the end of the day you just melt into the right kind of sofa. But your body is also this thing with a million moving parts, and the older you get, the more problems you start having with it. It does seem to be, along with a great vector for pleasure, maybe the greatest vector for shame and, and inconvenience in a person's life. Like, you know, Woody Allen ends his movie uh, Love and Death by saying, you know, the mind gets to enjoy things like art and philosophy, but the body has all the fun. But I don't think that's necessarily true. What comes to mind to counter that is David Remnick, the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, who was talking in some interview somewhere about how much he hates going to sleep, and I fucking hate it too. And he put it so, so well by saying the fact that I have to sleep is an insult. The fact that I am losing a third of my life to this nonsensical comatose state is just fucking aggravating. Even though sleep is its own kind of terrific pleasure. When I was a research assistant for a ghostwriter a few years ago, we worked on a memoir by a famous engineer in New York. And in his book, he talked about how he worked for several years on the on the sewer system in a certain part of New York. This is in the 70s. And maybe it's a bit romantic or maybe kind of self-aggrandizing on his part, but I thought that this he made it he made an interesting point, the engineer did, when he said that a culture is only civilized to the extent that it can manage its own waste. The idea being essentially that if we go back to shitting in chamber pots and then tossing it into the street, society is gonna crumble fast from just that practice. People are gonna get sick, they, they won't want to go out as often because it doesn't smell so great. Business will suffer as a result of it. I fucking, I think I've mentioned to you, in some of the businesses around, in, in my neighborhood in Little Havana, there is a one, when, you're, when they ring you up, they add a 1% homeless tax. And the homeless tax, this is their argument, reflects how so many hours of labor are devoted each year to just sort of scrubbing vomit and piss and shit off of the sidewalk and sweeping up scratch-offs and, and fucking vials and needles. Anyway, the point is, rather than dropping your waste into a pot and tossing it out the window, the more responsible thing to do, even though it might not be the easiest, is to simply stand up Go to the bathroom and do the business that your body, the thing that is both your encumbrance and your joy, demands you to do. And do it as quickly as you can. Pooping is an indignity similar to sleeping. So do it where you can, do it when you need to do it. Or, if you're not comfortable shitting in public, just do like I do. Stand up, disrupt your morning, go shit in some place isolated and clean, and then, to talk about what a headache that is, go ahead and start a podcast of your own. You've been listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And if you like the show and plan on sticking around, you'll be hearing a lot more of it in weeks to come, since, for at least a while, I'm going to be working on the podcast as a kind of part-time job. And if you'd like to support the show and me in that respect, 
You can check out the Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash thousandmovieproject, where there are four tiers of rewards, or if you'd like a free way to support the show, you can go to iTunes or Apple Podcast and leave a favorable review. I just saw there's like 34 positive reviews, and each one bolsters our standing in the charts and helps to attract more listeners. It bolsters visibility. So that would be a tremendous help. And if you point me toward your positive review, I'll be sure to send you one of the rewards that you might otherwise get for becoming a Patreon donor. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.